Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to the markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. When it rains, it pours. Inflation, supply chains, war, and tightening financial conditions. We've got it all. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on what it will take to get inflation back under control. The real determinants of inflation have to do with the total level of demand that's being stimulated by policies and Roger Altman of Evercore on whether things really are as bad as they look and what can be done about it. It certainly could uh, get worse before it gets better. It wasn't a great week on Global Wall Street. Consumer price numbers may have slowed down a bit, but according to Sarah House of Wells Fargo, not nearly enough. You are seeing some deceleration here, but you're gonna need to see a lot more. The war in Ukraine continued as President Putin made it clear he's not about to stop anytime soon. NATO countries didn't want to listen to us, and in fact, what happened, they had completely different plans. While in China, doubts grow about the economic path forward. It's less a story about China stimulating the global economy and more about whether or not it can even get its own economy uh, on a base level. 
And you can forget about crypto as a place to hide from the storm as Terra's USD stablecoin lost its dollar peg. In short, the entire model fell apart and was unable to withstand a black swan event or an adverse event. And Secretary Yellen warned of the potential risks for the financial system overall. I think that simply illustrates that this is a rapidly growing uh, product and there are risks to financial stability. And if all that weren't enough for you, we ended the week on Friday the 13th with Elon Musk tweeting that his bid for Twitter was temp on temporary hold, sending the stock down by as much as 25% at one point before he sent another tweet saying he was still committed to the deal, which helped a bit but still left the stock off about 10%. And as for the markets overall, equities made a valiant effort on Friday to come back from a bad week, but the S&P 500 still finished down 2.4% for the week, closing lower for the sixth week in a row, while the Nasdaq was off 2.8%, and the yield on the 10-year came down 20 basis points, ending the week at 2.92. To help us make some sense out of this rather chaotic week, we welcome now Kate Moore. She's BlackRock Global Allocation Team Head of Thematic Strategy, and David Bianco, CIO for DWS America. So David, it's not a very easy task, but what sense was made out of this week? Oh, this week was volatile. Uh, at least it ended on a happy note, uh, and we appreciate that equities uh, ended the week on, on a strong note, but let's face it, the equity market and most asset classes have been under a lot of pressure year to date. The S&P, it's flirting with a bear market. It was down as much as 18, 19% during the week. Now it's down 16% from its all-time highs. And I think we're in a range-bound market for some time. Markets just need to figure out what the normal interest rates are. And until we have an understanding as to where interest rates stabilize, and especially not until the bond markets stop suffering losses, the equity markets at risk. So, so, Kate, when you look at the equity market in relation to the bond market, how much of this is discounting future earnings? Basically, it's a discount rate put against future earnings. And how much was actually the multiple? In the highest growth parts of the market, the stuff that was commanding ridiculous multiples for a lot of 2021, you know, that derating has really started in November um, and has continued through the course of 2022. Uh, we still believe we're far away from a recession. And we think the Fed is in the very early stages of normalizing policy both in terms of policy rates, as well as, of course, quantitative tightening and reducing, um, or pardon me, uh, changing the size of the balance sheet. So, you know, those two things together are going to, I think, exert a bit of pressure, and I think are going to keep volatility high. We keep watching the relationship between, uh, you know, rates fall and equity vol, uh, and see if there's a change in the pattern. But right now, I think they're going to stay elevated. That's exactly right. I mean, we're watching interest rates. We're watching interest rate volatility. It's just uh, representative of how much on certainty there is on where interest rates are likely to go up, but where do they plateau? And yes, higher interest rates, particularly higher real interest rates, is reducing the PE multiple. And then there's this uncertainty about how long this expansion might last. I've said yeah. that this expansion is two years old, perhaps going on seven or nine years old biologically when it has a 10-year expected lifespan. So they've not only used a higher discount rate to take in the PE, they've also shortened their forecast horizons and so they're not paying for future growth. Instead, they're valuing the more certain earnings and dividends that you see coming from certain companies now. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, we look around and say, there are a lot of high-quality companies that you want to own for the next three or five years that are trading at pretty attractive multiples right now. 
that said, could the multiples overshoot to the downside? I mean, I think the answer is yes. There's a high probability that as the uncertainty rises around the macro environment and policy, that you end up seeing multiples get to kind of really silly cheap levels. Mm. If you want to average in, then great, but it's, this is a challenging environment. I think it's still a good environment for the long-term investor. You have to find that person. That person needs to really understand the volatility they may be facing. A 20 PE is still reasonable given these interest rates. Uh, they're still much lower than history. Now, the Fed has an inflation fight to fight, but uh, it's unlikely that interest rates go anywhere near where they were historically. Kate Moore of BlackRock and David Bianco of DWS Americas will be staying with us as we take a look down the road and what it means for investors if this inflation is here to stay. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We've got some inflation built into the system and... Uh... Price rises aren't going to go away overnight, but I think we begin seeing some hopeful signs uh, that we're at a point here where we can begin getting uh, a grip on this situation. That, of course, was Paul Volcker on Wall Street with way back in 1975. That was when he was the president of the New York Fed before he got to administer his medicine to the economy as head of the Federal Reserve. David Bianco of w DWS Americas and Kate Moore of BlackRock are still with us. So, Kate, let me ask you a question that I'm hearing more and more. Some people are suggesting this may be here for a long time to come. We had Jason Furman on from Harvard earlier this week on Bloomberg. He said he thinks it could be years we have uh, really high inflation. If that's right, if that proves to be true, what does that say for, to investors? 
Well, actually, you know, as, as much stress as we have around higher inflation rates, particularly since most of us haven't had to deal with this for the majority of our lives, um, there's actually a really interesting investment theme around higher inflation. It's really interesting to look at uh, within industries, which companies have pricing power, which companies are doing a really good job of managing their costs and managing to their margins, and which are struggling. I mean, I also like this theme of looking at companies uh, that have very high labor intensity to sales. In other words, do they have to continue to hire, and especially at a time where we know the total cost of an employee continues to rise, um, or do they have business models that are scalable, they can continue to grow without adding to additional labor? I mean, we have to live in this environment and invest in this environment, and I think there's some pretty interesting opportunities, uh, even though inflation does pinch our wallets. Well, okay, give me an example. What sorts of sectors at least are you talking about? Okay, an example might be, like if you're just thinking in the consumer sectors, for example, you know, some companies have done a really good job of, you know, writing longer term contracts, of managing their input costs. Sometimes they've made great investments in software and systems and technology so that they've been able to reduce their dependence on labor. All of these things help to sort of mitigate the margin pressure that an inflationary environment uh, might otherwise scare us into, right? And so there are some decent fundamental stories, even in a higher inflationary environment, but you really got to get to know the company. And there are some beneficiaries of the Fed fighting inflation. Banks, insurance companies, they should benefit from higher interest rates. We think utilities are a really good bond substitute with inflation protection and probably delivering the energy of the, the future, electrification. Uh, and we like healthcare. And healthcare has become the biggest part of consumer spending. It continues to be the fastest growing part. Productivity, medicines, devices are needed there. These productivity providers, we think they're going to be able to play an important role in capture profits. What I love about your clip in 1975 is that even though Paul Volcker recognized the challenge ahead, it surprised even him, the big man, to the upside. Inflation can be a very big problem when that genie's out of the bottle. Okay, that leads me exactly to my question to you, David, which is you studied that period. Yeah. Uh, do we need this time the sort of medicine that Paul Volcker ended up administering that time? Because it was pretty tough. It was brutal medicine, and I think people need to appreciate that it was a very high price to pay for allowing inflation to accelerate for so long. Volcker hiked the overnight interest rate to 19%, and inflation got to 15%. Uh, it caused a recession, uh, but one of the things that's important to recognize is that there was this combination of tightening monetary policy while there's a lot of pro-supply-side policy. It was Reaganomics with Volcker's monetary discipline that really helped seed uh, a terrific 1980s and, and longer expansion. So, Kate, uh, help me here because you're responsible for making these sorts of decisions. And normally, if you've got a lot of inflation, you don't want to have cash because it's dwindling right. even as you hold on to it. On the other hand, we've got a lot of uncertainty. So what's your approach? Yeah, you know, normally I would say holding cash in the bank and not investing it or putting it to work in the market in some way, you know, is a waste. And especially in real terms, you just think about that cash kind of burning away. Of course, holding cash in this environment where we've had a really, really challenging period for both bonds and stocks in terms of returns has actually proven to be a really good portfolio diversifier. In fact, we're holding a fairly high level of cash, both as an expression of our duration view. So we've had a sort of shorter duration position in the fund. We also de-risked part of our equity portfolio uh, while still holding some of the higher growth, higher quality companies that I think they can compound over the next couple of years. 
I think you should have dry powder. I, I really recommend people having some cash at this point. We're going to get some interesting bites at the Apple. Um, you know, some other high quality companies, as I was mentioning before, may even get cheaper than this as we, you know, have a very volatile period over the next couple one, months of policy adjustment and, you know, recession fears, recession fears fading. Uh, David, in a time of inflation, one thing people tend to go to is real assets, real sure. estate and other kinds of real assets. Right. Does that make sense right now? It does. And there's a nice uh, availability of real assets, and they're investable more than they were back in the past. It's easier to invest in commodities. It's easier to invest in real estate. It's easier to even buy inflation-protected securities. These things, particularly the ease of which they're investable nowadays, I bet you investors wish they had those options in the late 70s and early 80s. So there are ways to help manage through this period of uncertainty and the risks of inflation being high. Okay, so this is unfair. There's a curveball, Kate. I'll throw it your way. Cash is not trash. What about crypto? I mean, we've had this whole discussion. There was something like $270 billion worth of value came out of crypto and out of stablecoins. Did that teach us anything in general? I talked to Larry Summers, and he said mainly that greed drives the marketplace. Yeah, first of all, I'm stealing Dave's cash is not trash, uh, and I might make a like little tattoo of that on my shoulder. <laughs> but um, what, this is what I'll say. I, I'm by far and away not an expert or an authority in any um, on, a, on crypto or digital assets. I just would say that for people who are adding that into their portfolios as a diversifier, I think we've seen an incredibly higher correlation uh, between all of these assets and actually between a lot of them and, you know, um, more speculative parts of the technology sector. And, you know, you got to really think about your portfolio construction. This is the very early stages of this, you know, um, digital finance revolution, if you will. And you have to be, uh, I think, pretty balanced in your portfolio if you're going to own some of those assets. Such a great I don't know where it goes from here, but I will say um, you have to be cautious. Yeah. Uh, just quickly, that's such a great point Kate just made. We talk about trying to avoid correlations sure. so you can be hedged. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I heard a lot of people talk about the correlation between big tech on the one hand and crypto on the other, but we certainly have seen it recently. A lot of the same owners, so uh, yes, they find themselves having been hurt and perhaps having to de-risk. Um, the, the thing about, uh, one of the things to keep in mind, the dollar's been getting stronger, and if the Fed pulls this off well, the dollar will reign supreme again. Uh, what about that, Kate? What about a strong dollar? What does it do to your investment? Yeah, we, we take some concurrency views into consideration. I got to tell you, though, in the, over the course of my career, I don't have the, the best batting average on, on <laughs> making cross-currency uh, yeah. bets. Yeah. You know, I've, what I will tell you, though, is, right. you, you know, it does affect how we think about our international well, I'm sure not a currency trader. So thank you so much. Great to have you both with us. That's Kate Moore of BlackRock and David Bianco of DWS Americas. Coming up, we take a look at what's coming up next week on Wall Street. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. up in stocks and then the subsequent sell-off in stocks on Wall Street is really working its way into the global narrative. Seeing that sell-off pattern in stocks and bonds really continue. An economic slowdown spurred another bout of risk aversion. Here's that rainy day. It's been a long bull run in the markets, in wealth accumulation and in the economy, which came back fast even after being brought to a halt by a pandemic. The fact is, America has a lot to be proud of. 
We're experiencing the strongest economic recovery in the world. But now, everything that looked so rosy gives cause for concern. From inflation... Look at the numbers. The headline comes in up three-tenths of a percent. ...to the supply chain... Some of the supply chain headaches that some are saying are, are reaching a, an all-time high. ...to Ukraine... The Russians have been acting more like a bulldozer than, than a Tesla. ...to China... I think we're, they're headed for a growth recession. So yeah, I think the rest of the year is going to be very tough for China. Leaving an investor to wonder, how bad will it get? And when you ask a question as basic as how bad can it get, you want a true veteran, even a legend of Wall Street and Washington. And that's what we have here in Roger Altman. He is the senior chairman, and of course, the founder of Evercore. Roger, welcome back. It's great to have you here. Thank, Thank you, David. You. Great to see you. So it's been a week, maybe a month, of hearing all the bad things everywhere you turn. And, and it's inflation, and it's the Fed, and it's Ukraine, it's China, it's supply chain. How bad is it? Well, the S&P 500, as of right now, is down more or less 20%. And, and that's uh, the definition of a true correction. And so I would say it, it's been pretty severe. Uh, I think the big question is how much worse can it get? Uh, and no one knows the answer to that, and I certainly don't, but it, it certainly could uh, get worse before it gets better. And you know, historically, when you, you see such a profound change in monetary policy, which as, as we're having now, or in the beginning stages of now. Historically, it's been, at least over the uh, short term after the change starts, bad for equity values. That's really been the case very often. So it's not surprising that stocks are down now that the Fed has ended this relatively long period of almost free money uh, and is headed up uh, on a, on a substantial uh, substantial upward trajectory in terms of tightening, uh, it's not surprising stocks are down. But I think, as you just said, it coincides with a lot of other negative news, uh, most basically inflation, but also some of the other points you make about Ukraine uh, and so forth. And so it could get worse. Do I think we're in the in, uh, on the verge of a financial crisis? I don't. I don't. I just think it's a uh, sharp correction in equity values, which when you step back and think about them, in so many cases, especially tech, were hard to, hard to rationalize before this change. I mean, there were some uh, astronomical values, as you well know, and it's not surprising that they're finally recti being rectified. So you talk about the equity markets, we can talk about the bond markets as well, which has really taken it on the chin. What is the relationship between those financial markets on one hand and, if I can put it this way, the real world? Because a lot of your work at Evercore is dealing with real companies who are buying and selling companies or pieces of companies. Does it directly translate into the value of those assets or is it somewhat removed? It does directly translate in, in two ways. Uh, the stock market is a... Uh, uh, pretty reliable predictor of the broad economy, albeit uh, nine months or so in advance of the real economy's changing. So um, right now, there's a big debate as to whether we may have a recession in 2023. And uh, I think that's about 50-50 myself. But uh, we're, we're slowing down even right now. And and the market is, in effect, telling us that. In terms of our own business, oh, yes, it has a big effect because when, when the volatility is so high and people hesitate, they want to step back and wait for the smoke to clear and the environment to settle. Uh, 
And so transactions slow down. There's no doubt about it. Um, and you can see that, by the way, in the valuations of all the investment banks, which have come down a lot for a variety of reasons, but one of them is an anticipated slowdown in transaction volume. But it's interesting, people start to sit on their hands, if I can put it that way. They're afraid to make a move. And that trumps what otherwise might be an instinct. Is, you know, there are some bargains now. Some prices are coming down. Yes, uh, yes. It's the, the price tag is lower. It might cause some CEOs to say, now's the time to move. Well, and in fact, just before, just on my way over here, uh, I was on the phone with some of my colleagues because we we're having a call. Uh, with a very, very well-known company that we work with closely. That's a, a technology company, a very big one. And a lot of the, the um, smaller companies they've been interested in buying in recent years have just been too expensive. Roger, thank you so very much. This is so helpful. Always a pleasure, David. That's Roger Altman. He is senior chairman and founder of Evercore. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and it's time once again this week to have Larry Summers of Harvard come to us and explain this really perplexing week. So, Larry, thanks so much for being back with us. I could call this the week of inflation, as it were, with the CPI numbers, the PPI numbers, something you've been warning about for some time. Now, some people are saying that shows sort of we've hit the peak, it's starting to come down. What did you read into those numbers? You know, once again, the numbers were worse than uh, people expected them uh, to be. We may have hit a peak uh, last month at 8.5, but we're not headed anywhere near two anytime soon. 
And that says that we've got very big challenges ahead of us in terms of managing uh, this economy. And I think there's a lot of real risks uh, out there. I see an overheated labor market as the core of the inflation process, driving service prices up. And I see lots of risks geopolitically in terms of supply chains, geopolitically in terms of uh, commodity uh, prices. And so I think this is going to be a very difficult environment for quite some time to come. Well, let's talk about that quite some time to come, because we're now starting to see some people, including Jason Furman on Bloomberg this week, say he thinks that we could have years of inflation, even if we get a recession, we would, because there are some structural factors that could give us long, long inflation instead of long COVID. Look, I think there are two sets of issues that mean that that is uh, a plausible view. One is most inflations don't get stopped with a single slowdown. There are multiple attempts to break inflation before there's ultimate success. That was certainly the case in the previous big inflation that we've had in the modern era in the 1960s and 1970s. And then there's the argument, I'm never sure how much weight to give it, that we're probably in a more labor short economy that we used to be, that the pressures of globalization that we used to feel are no longer uh, there, that there's more capacity of firms to niche market than there used to be, and that all of that means there's going to be a bit less ruthless deflationary pressure than we've seen in most of this century so far, and that that could operate in the direction of uh, higher uh, inflation. I think I'd be very surprised if the average inflation rate during the 2020s wasn't materially higher than the average uh, inflation rate uh, during the decade of the teens. And it's reinforced by a growing number of voices. Uh, I'm not yet prepared to join the chorus saying that we should set a target for inflation that is higher than uh, 2%. It could conceivably be ultimately right, but I think moving in that direction immediately would very much undermine what limited anti-inflation credibility the Fed has. Uh, so, Larry, the question then obviously is what do we do about this inflation? Is there anything that can be done? Obviously, the Federal Reserve has the frontline responsibility, but we also have uh, the executive branch and now the legislature saying, well, we can do some things. We have President Biden saying to the FTC, take a look at price gouging. And then we have the uh, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, saying she's going to bring legislation forward next week about price gouging at the pump. Is that going to help us? The price gouging at the pump uh, stuff, the more general price gouging stuff, is to economic science what President Trump's remarks about uh, disinfectant in your veins was to uh, medical science. Uh, it is dangerous nonsense. Uh, <laughs> there is no material prospect that in any enduring way, gouging legislation can have any substantial effect on inflationary pressure. But it can cause and contrive all kinds of shortages. It can 
distort a complex network of flows between crude and refined product. It can inhibit the supply responses that are what's ultimately the best way uh, to overcome uh, inflation. Uh, this gouging talk is a diversionary confusion. It's something that tends to happen when we have uh, inflations, but we only make progress once we move through that and we understand that the real determinants of inflation have to do with the total level of demand that's being stimulated by policies. If politicians outside the Fed want to make a difference on inflation to the limited extent they can, they should be reducing tariffs, they should be letting more immigrants into the country, they should be reducing regulatory burdens like the Jones Act that mandates that only U.S. ships can take crude oil from uh, Texas uh, to uh, the Northeast. So, Larry, let's wrap up this week with a couple of quick rips from the headlines. One of them is cryptocurrencies and stablecoins. The prices of those certainly didn't go up this week. And in fact, I saw there was something like $270 billion worth of market value taken away. Do we know anything at the end of the week about cryptocurrency stablecoin that we didn't know at the beginning of the week? We've been reminded of something we should have known, which is that fear and greed drive financial markets, all financial markets, and crypto's not immune from that. And bank run phenomena, whether it's banks, whether it's money market uh, funds, whether it's repo or whether it's crypto, when you don't have backing and you lose confidence, you get a big mess. And finally, Larry, at the very end of the week on Friday, Elon Musk tweeted on the one hand that he was having some second thoughts about Twitter, and then he came back and said, no, no, he's still committed to it. It's not clear. The stock certainly went down, came back a little bit, but it certainly went down substantially. Uh, does this say something larger about what's going on with tech right now? We saw that the value of so many big tech companies has come down. It's possible this is actually having some buyer's remorse. Elon is, I think, Elon Musk is, I think, in some ways, the Andrew Carnegie of our time. A titanic, innovative, driving, extraordinarily wealthy uh, figure who, when he has leverage, uses it. And with the changes at Twitter that have already taken place in the absence of other bidders, he has enormous leverage in this situation, and I suspect he's using it. That's fascinating. The Andrew Carnegie of our time, that will go down. So, but as a, as a larger issue, is tech not going to have as large a role in the markets going forward as it has in the past? I suspect the, that the share of total wealth, uh, total stock market that's in tech may be somewhat lower over the next few years than it has been over the last few years. But I think it's going to continue to be the case that uh, the most valuable companies are uh, tech companies. I think it's going to continue to be the case that, as it always is, that uh, technology and the transformations that it brings are driving uh, history. Uh, my guess is that we're going to see very profound changes coming out of artificial intelligence over the next decade, and I'm not sure where that's going to go. 
Okay, Larry, it's always such a pleasure, a real treat to have you with us. That's Larry Summers of Harvard, a very special contributor for Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. There's no shortage of pessimism in the markets these days, with central bankers falling over one another to tell us how determined they are to raise rates. We don't rule out 75 forever, right? I mean, what I'm going to do is I think 50, the cadence we're going now seems about right to me. And those higher rates can mean only one thing, money coming out of the market and making all those financial assets less valuable than we thought they were. A trader actually told me that the, the consensus here is that the S&P 500 will ultimately trade down to a P.E. multiple of 16 to 18. We're at about 20 to 21 right now. So by that standard, we still have a lot more selling to go. When it comes to taking money off the table, we always start with the riskier, more speculative parts of our portfolio, like Bitcoin. Bitcoin, of course, extending losses, even dropping below well, almost 30,000 at one point to, on Monday. This is the first time it goes this low since back in July 20. And tech stocks, including those in Kathy Wood's ARK fund, which this week gave back all of its gains against the S&P 500, and then some. Kathy Wood's strategy, for example, of picking stocks that have fallen victim to the tech meltdown. Some of her favorites tumbling in an environment of rising interest rates and high inflation. There's a look at the ARK Innovation ETF. But fear not, there are some assets that are holding up nicely even setting new records. Like, for example, 20th century American art. 100 million, uh, 110 million, 110 million, 120. This week, Andy Warhol's portrait of Marilyn Monroe, it's called Shot Sage Blue Marilyn, set a new record going for $195 million. That's almost double the previous record of $110 million for a painting by Jean-Michel Basquiat. We did sell the most expensive painting of the 20th century. It's the highest price ever paid, uh, close to $200 million. Uh, let it sink in. It's quite something. So with all the talk about cryptocurrencies and NFTs as the value of the future, it's good to know that the safe haven investment may just be, in the end, good old-fashioned art. Though I'm sure Mr. Warhol would not appreciate being called old-fashioned in any way. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and this is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.